our new special segment, Stirring the Sauce, hosted by me, Joshma, and me, Mickey. Stirring the Sauce covers pieces written by journalists covering sensational or timely topics pertaining to hip-hop. We'll be discussing our take on the topic, the writer's intention, the reader's reaction, and more. In our first episode, we are going to discuss Ice Cube's contract with Black America, his strategies to get it on political platforms, and the effects of those moves and what's behind them. But first, let's lay out all the basic ingredients for the sauce we need to stir. Basic ingredients. <laughs> Ice Cube's contract with Black America was written to suggest policy changes and additional funding in order to gain equity for Black Americans and their communities. Ice Cube, as a representative for the contract, brought it to both political parties' presidential campaigns. He attempted to get each to hear him out and reach an agreement to adopt parts of these demands directly onto their party platforms. He wanted engagement, but in a perfect world, for the campaigns to sign the full contract agreeing to take action on its suggestions. A few weeks before the election, the Trump campaign incorporated some parts of some suggestions into their own platinum plan, including somewhat vague commitments to increasing access to capital in Black communities by $500 billion and prosecuting the KKK as a terrorist group. The Biden campaign said, they liked what he had, but asked to talk after the election. Uh, this is all according to Ice Cube. Cube was thanked on Twitter by Katrina Pearson of the Trump campaign for working with them on the platinum plan. And Cube has since been defending his involvement. On CNN, he said, I'm willing to work with both teams, but I'm just working with whoever is willing to work with me. For us to not engage with both sides of the aisle to fix what I think is an American problem is not going to help us in the end. Woo. Yeah. So that is, uh, it was a lot. We wanted to make sure we got all the details, but that is summed up to as short as we can make it all of the basic ingredients. Jashima. Yeah, absolutely. And if you want more information on the black contract with America or the platinum plan, please go look it up on the black contract with America site or the platinum plan that was presented by the Trump administration. Yep. They're already available. We'll be covering three main questions on this episode which are as follows. What was Ice Cube's intention and was it valid? What were the impacts of his moves at large? And how did the audiences react to the different writers' pieces? Yes, so uh, now is the time to intro each of the pieces that we'll, we will be discussing with the authors who wrote them. Uh, first, we sat with Elijah Watson from OK Player about his piece, What is the Role of the Wealthy Male Hip Hop Pundit? to discuss how he views Ice Cube's moves as a part of a larger pattern. Then after Elijah, we sat with Scott Woods of Level Magazine on Medium about his piece, Ice Cube isn't winning at chess, he's losing at poker, where he discusses Cube's gameplay and his supporters' views of it. Take a listen. Elijah, just so we can say it on the record, thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about uh, what me and Jeshima uh, view and read as a, a wildly important piece within this discussion. Um, so let's just go get straight into it uh, with our first question. In your article, if you're qualifying Ice Cube's moves as part of a pattern of black male pundits, can you explain that pattern? Yeah, so the... The piece was centered around this idea of just like wealthy male 
hip hop pundits and how they, you know, they have an intention that is good, but it's also very, very um, black male centered. So as a result of that, there tends to be an omission in terms of the concerns of black women or LGBTQ people. So it was, it was really just contextualizing how that narrow gaze informs all of them and how like they were, the main overarching similarity of course is like that narrow gaze is what brings them all together is like we are black men and we feel like we are doing this on behalf of all black people but in reality it's really just still very black male focused yeah so i i want to skip to this other question real quick so this um <laughs> This was a thing that I read. Um, Ice Cube did an interview with Vivica Fox. I don't know if you saw any version of that. And then when she asked why women weren't mentioned in the contract specifically, Cube's response was, you are mentioned. When you mention Black people, you mention Black women, so don't count yourself out. And my question to you, based on your piece, is, is this enough? <laughs> no, of course it's not enough. Like, what are you talking about? Just asking for a friend. Yeah, you know, it's you can't you can't you can't work on that assumption, you know, especially nowadays where it's just like the the concerns of black people at large are so just so prevalent, you know, like all all different types of black people are expressing their concerns. So you have to be explicit when you're when you're speaking on behalf of these people, you know, like you have to be very clear about like some of these concerns for each person, or at least like a good overarching idea of what those concerns might be, you know? And so to just say like, you're a part of that, don't count yourself out when literally none of those bullet points specifically speak to those things. Like I even remember how Ice Cube's plan didn't have anything, if I remember correctly, anything in terms of like infertility rates and like those concerns, while Biden's plan did. And that's explicit, like that's a very clear concern for black women and just also addressing the stigmas around healthcare with not just black people, but black women specifically. So you have to have these clear, you have to have these clear points that you plan to make because the reality is is that it's it's like hierarchical in a sense like it's like when you say that we already know who's at the top who's the first concern so you have to be explicit about being like no this is a b c and d each one of these these people will be are being acknowledged and being identified you can't just go off of assumption yeah, I work with um, a, a postpartum rehabilitation app for work, and I often talk about this, but Black women in America are disproportionately subjected to um, infant death, an array of labor and delivery related concerns. And so in the healthcare part specifically, Trump, Trump's, um, the Trump administration's, I guess, integration of portions of Ice Cube's contract is secondary to this, but even Ice Cube's contract if you don't specify those things, they're considered not considered. 
not automatically included in my mind. It's part of the reason everybody is being conscious of using the word BIPOC because black and indigenous people don't have the same perils and disparities as just people of color do. And it's extremely different. So in some ways I understand the logic of saying, hey, you're a part of this community at large, but also no, because when that community at large benefits from something or something happens, women are often left out of that narrative. Exactly. And it's just like, I don't like, my main thing with his contract and how you really could see that it was more black male centered was the addendum that I noted in the piece is like this whole idea of a very like hetero like family structure of bringing like the black man and the black woman together again having like the strong like family unit when it's like that's such an archaic idea of what a strong family unit can be but that that was a note for me where I was like you know we know who you're who this is really geared towards and that's why you are being that is just one example of why you are being criticized for this plan aside from the fact of working with Trump. So speaking specifically with kind of working with Trump and you spoke on this a little bit earlier um, about kind of Ice Cube's you definitely spoke about it explicitly in the piece about Ice Cube's cynicisms for both parties. And you kind of differentiated um, the two parties as you were speaking a little bit earlier. But um, do you think there is some validity to his cynicism? Oh, absolutely. I, that, I don't think that that's like the question or concern. Like that cynicism is very valid. We have plenty of reasons, regardless of which pol political party you align with, Black people have plenty of reasons to be cynical to both. And I mean, we're kind of even witnessing this now in terms of like Black women being the driving force behind, you know, flipping states and the, the people that Biden are already considering are people who have a questionable track record in terms of taking care of black people in this country. So the cynicism is valid. The critique and the, and the criticism was just, one of these is going to, one of these is going to be at the very least a little bit more, a little bit more helpful and less, um, less wanting to maintain white supremacy. One, because of the figures associated with it and trying to dismantle it. Um, and two, just because, you know, one party clearly isn't being run by Donald Trump. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So then what do you think, um, it's a good transition. So then what do you think are the, the, potential um, harms or outcomes that could come from aligning in any way with the Trump campaign or helping with the platinum plan? I mean, we're already seeing it. It's just in terms, it's just like, you know, this, like they ran with it. The moment that whoever was able to pull the trigger on the back end in terms of releasing that news, it, he became like a he became just not a just like a figure 
for them to be able to use and manipulate to their own bidding, which he did acknowledge um, when he did his Rolling Stone interview. But even then, there was still just like, uh, I know how the game is played. And it's like, well, if you know how the game is played, why did you, why were you complicit in it? You know, like, it's like, you did not need to, you didn't need to make this move. And like, that's, that's the thing is, you know, pandering, pandering, political, political parties pandering to rap music has become a very prevalent thing. You know, both, both sides are, um, are guilty of that, you know, even if like, we just think of like, the um the rap battle ad that biden had <laughs> you know like it's like you know i get it i get it you know it's like this is what is going to be inevitable when you become the most popular music genre in the country at the intersection of politics at the intersection of artists feeling obligated or maybe even sincerely wanting to engage with politics. So all these things are gonna intersect and become a part of it. I would just say the problem is, is that when you're working with someone like Trump, who is at a very interesting intersection himself in terms of like this reality TV star turned politician, he's gonna know how to flip that. And he's also going to make sure that his administration knows how to flip that to where it works in his benefit. What that benefit was, I think, was maybe having certain, I guess, still maybe undecided Black voters maybe lean towards Trump. You know, like that influence has has power to it. Um, as we've already seen with like some exit polls, there was an increase of black support with Trump, obviously more so with men. So who knows if Q played a part in that? We may never know unless we were to find those specific people. But I say all that to say that one, you're just, you're playing in the hand of somebody even though you say that you knew you were going to get played. So why would you do it in the first place? And two, that possibility of you being seen as this figure and people being like, well, if you're rocking with him, even if like you have not explicitly said you endorse him, the fact you're giving him a chance, maybe we should too, for some reason, you know? Yeah, I think something I saw on Twitter as a response to a lot of these pieces in general was this sentiment of, for example, in your piece, you talk about Diddy encouraging folks to forego their vote. And so this, this woman on Twitter tweeted something along the lines of, if they don't vote and things don't go the way that they should, that person's life is not that implicated. Whether it's because of their financial success or their celebrity or their stature, their ability to leave the country or succeed in this country. And that doesn't take away from what they had to do to get success, but they're not implicated if it doesn't go their way in a lot of aspects in life, right? Money lets you control who you're around, what businesses you support. And I thought that was really interesting. So what is your take on that? Yeah, I agree. Like that's that's why Diddy could be, he is in a place of privilege to be able to make such a declaration, you know, and it shows a lack of self-awareness in terms of like, we like the average working class, poor American can't forego our vote, especially in a, an election that was as serious as this one was. So 
with him, it was just like this like tone deafness of just like, we get it. Like, yes, obviously, once again, as I had said before, with black women, just like really being integral to flipping these states in Biden's favor, our vote has a lot of power. But there is a smarter way of conveying that without from jump off being like, we need to forego our vote. If anything, the smarter thing would have been to like, all right, cool, like vote. And then all we can do is just continue to hold these people in these positions accountable. That's all we can do, you know? But it's also just it, the, the other thing that I didn't really get to, but I feel like I hinted at is the fact that because they are wealthy, there is this reliance on black capitalism. And we're also just at a period of time where like, we're all just trying to be liberated from that shit. You know, <laughs> we're, we're trying to imagine realities where we're not tethered to capitalism, you know, and the harm that it does to people on so many different levels. So, you know, that was like Ice Cube's thing. What like his last tweet in relation to it was like, I, you know, I was like, I advocated upon like trying to, what was it like 40 billion? 500 billion, you know, getting Trump to agree to that. And it's like, one, money isn't going to solve all of our problems. Does it help? Absolutely. But we're at a period in time where we're trying to really, really divest from these norms in the ways that we've been navigating life. Two, like, it's Trump. Like, how do you actually believe like this man is going to actually do that? <laughs> like, this is a person who like did not want to even consider giving people another stimulus check until after this election was done. Like this person, if this person doesn't even care about the people who want to keep him in power, what makes you think that he cares about the people that don't want to keep him in power? You know, it, it, it's, it, that was like one of the main things for me that I wish I could have gotten to more, but like just this idea of like black capitalism being this, like this idea that will save us when it's like, we, we have to be thinking beyond that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in your piece, you talk about how, correct me if I'm wrong, it was killer Mike that was talking to his state government about small businesses and different things going on. And he talks about how he rightfully should have a seat at the table. And I think that that's true, right? Everyone should be able to go represent themselves or present their personal interest and their community's interest. But I also find it really interesting that this like camp of folks, whether they're saying slightly different things or not, tend to get grouped together. So when we're looking at how the audience or the average reader perceives all of them, mm. it becomes a little bit of a monolith of like, here are, the men in hip hop that support this plan or some variation of this in some way. And so on one hand, it's like, he want, Killer Mike wants people to be okay with him talking to the government. On the other hand, it's like, but are we empowering black communities to vote? Because for so long we fought, well, they fought for the right to vote, right? Women fought for the right to vote, black communities fought for the right to vote. And so just when we have the opportunity to widen those communication lines and help people vote in a system that's designed against them, I feel like discouraging a vote is offensive and almost going backwards in time. Yeah, it's like I said, I get it. The sentiment is understandable, but 
if we are going to try and work within the system, then we have to, while just doing what we, what we are able to as just American citizens, which is just hold these people accountable, you know, like we have to just always just remain vigilant and just make sure that they are doing what they promised that they would, you know, it's to just simply say like, just forego the vote. And it's like, well, you know, well, what are you going to do for all these other disenfranchised people who you're telling to forego this vote? What is, what is the other solution that they can actually manifest for themselves? And the reality is that those things caught those things in order to do those things, you need money which is why they are comfortable in being able to say the things that they say, because they have the resources to be able to actually implement those things. But the reality is, is that most people do not. So as long as the system is existing, while we're also trying to dismantle it, reform it, what have you, we have to just do that while just still holding these systems and these people accountable. Right. So with that said, it, Correct me if I'm wrong in saying this. It seems like your intention with the piece was not only aimed at the pundits themselves, but the people looking to them for guidance on some level. Um, is that, would you say it firstly, would you say that that's on some level correct? Mm, not, but not as like patronizing, like not to like, you know, not like, oh, you shouldn't be like listening to them. I get it. Like we're, we're going to listen to the people who, we, we resonate with. And I mean, I even think we see that in terms of like politicians who actually are like, who are actually able to convey these things in a way that, you know, your average person can take in. That's like, I think that's the main reason why a person like AOC is thriving and why she is considered a threat, you know, to her peers is because she knows the language. She knows how to use these platforms that, that's the difference you know it's in no way would i be like patronizing people for following these people it's more so just you know asking them asking of them why do we feel like we need their opinion for these things especially if nine times out of ten they're not as informed as they may think they are you know like with and that's why in the piece with Killer Mike, I think I gave him a little more leeway just because he has that background and he's been vocal about that background. The the concern with him is just how are you, you know, you are valid in the sense that like we should be meeting up with the politicians who are meant to represent us. Mm-hmm. But uh, the you're doing this when there's still the the um, frustration and anger surrounding Kemp and the belief that he won against Stacey Abrams, Stacey Abrams unfairly, um, and just the issues of voter suppression surrounding that to where, and then not only that, but just what, what did he say? Like he was like a dignified man or something, some type of positive um, descriptor for Kemp that people were just like, we, can't agree with this considering that this man has you know allegedly um suppressed people's votes in in um throughout georgia so 
with him, it was like, it was, there was a little bit more, um, more of a little bit of like leeway with him, but you know, it, in no way was it to like chastise anybody who like listens or patronizes uh, or patronize any of uh, any of us who look to these people for guidance. Cause it's like, that's also just the ecosystem we live in, you know, like the, these intersections of just like celebrity and politics and like trying to, trying to get our sources from people that we believe in, even if they may be misinformed, you know? Yeah, and, and, and did you title this piece or did the editor change the title? I did. Which is really interesting because so, I'm Indian, so every time people use the word pundit, it's really um, interesting to me because nowadays in, in American vernacular, it's used always with this undertone of, is this someone you should take guidance from? And in certain communities, um, we, we often ask those same questions about abundant, right? Because abundant is really just, it's, it's the Hindi word for priest. Um, mm, oh, wow. It's really interesting because if you look up the word pundit spelled with a U in American English, it refers to someone with given expertise in something. And we tend to use it that way, but I wonder what the undernotes and connotations are because in, a, in many communities, that's sort of like a, you listen to abundant, but is it blind leading the blind or are you blindly listening to what someone else says because society tells you that they are supposed to have the end all be all answer? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think the want to use pundit was just, I guess maybe just some just form of, this is what these, this is what they are trying to represent, right? Um, maybe, I mean, I don't, I don't want to put words in any of their mouths, but maybe they wouldn't, they wouldn't like the idea of being called experts on these things, but it's also just like, if you're going to talk about these topics, you're going to create these plans, you, you need to have that knowledge and you need to be also transparent, you know, about who you spoke with about these things that would give credence to credence and credibility to your plan, you know, specifically speaking with Ice Cube, where it's just like to just release a plan um, with very, you know, very valid criticisms, but also just to not even have like a full explanation of the background and the people that helped you get to this conclusion that led to this plan doesn't do you any favors, you know? Um, and so it, it was just like choosing pundit was intentional. Um, and I wouldn't say there was like any other thing behind it. Just that's what they are. <laughs> yeah. So got Joshua was spitting the bars with the pundit abundance thing that I didn't know about. She didn't tell me about that, <laughs> that conversation beforehand. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I gotta give you some surprises. No. Yeah, sure. <laughs> hitting me with the left hooks over here too. So um what were the um what were if any the the kind of reactions that you 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 received from the piece itself? whether it be from the pundits or otherwise? So I actually didn't receive any real backlash like on social media. I feel like most of the, most of the things that I did see were like supportive or just like understanding. And I think that that's in general, I try to be a pretty nuanced writer. 
it's very rare that I'm going to take a very like, very like divisive take or like just perspective, you know, um, I'm always going to try and provide just some nuance to where it, it goes kind of beyond just like the very immediate topical kind of responses that we tend to get. Um, and I mean, I even think about this with, I think it was a couple of years at this point where like I had written about, um, I had written about DJ academics and uh, Adam 22 and like this idea of like, what does the hip hop journalists represent when these two are kind of like the main popular representatives of that. But even then that wasn't like a takedown piece. That was just a very critical nuanced take about like, what does this mean at large? You know, and I think that that was also the point with this is like, what does it mean at large when it's like the intersection of being a celebrity and being a pundit, this idea of like, should we be listening to them at all? On top of like ideas of like, none of us really want to be in black capitalism anymore, you know, just all these different things. Um, so say all that to say, no, I didn't face any real backlash, but I think it is a part of that just yeah. having more of like a nuanced take. I think this was probably, Mickey, I don't know what your take is. We've probably read anywhere between 10 to 20 pieces on yeah. Ice Cube by different writers and this and this platinum plan. But I think communities need, I think the biggest problem is not always toxic headline culture, but it's actually like apathetic readers, um, which we're all trying to change because there's such a short attention span. But if you can't know anything or have any knowledge or understand the facts surrounding something, it's even harder to have an opinion that affects change in any type of way. So I thought that was a brilliant part of your piece. I learned things I didn't know after reading 20 pieces. Yo, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. I think it was, yeah, I think it, the, what it really tapped into for me is, is, is taking what can be really zoned in on as one individual thing and expanding it into the larger pattern really felt like an important way um, for, for me to, to analyze what was going on beyond what I had perceived beforehand too. So yeah, that's, that's what really stood out to me as well. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. From like looking at people as extremes of things, but like you're able to be like, Oh, well maybe I would meet with a government official, but maybe not like that, you know? <laughs> and I think that part's really important. And also, I mean, I think the main thing, like, I don't know if one day I were ever able to meet any three of those men who, you know, I appreciate for their own, their own reasons, you know, um, obviously on a musical level, but it's just uh, also just willing to listen to the criticism, you know, um, because obviously we're seeing them disagree with people in real time and social media. Um, and just like, you know, I think I made like a little brief acknowledgement of how there's people like No Name or like Cardi B who come, who come at politics in like this kind of curiosity and always knowing that they don't always have the answers because this is an ever-changing thing, right? Is this idea... We're, we're, we're trying to manifest realities that aren't realities yet. So that's always going to be constantly changing. There's always gonna be someone providing new insight for it. And I, I really appreciate people specifically like No Name where it's just like, 
this this is a person who is speaking beyond just like the reality that we live in whether where she's bringing discussions of liberation into into the political sphere and having her fans discuss that with her and taking reception back and taking criticism back and that would be something that i think would help all of them or any in general really any like you know hip-hop artist who does at some point want to go in that is like it's fine to be able to say like you don't know enough or maybe you did overlook a certain part of this community if anything people are going to respect you and appreciate you more for that you know or even that there are other people out there who have already taken a lot more time and put it into the work itself um other than self and like you know that was the you know a striking thing about coming and doing the the contract and like going in on the platinum plan is is like it felt like some level of an acknowledgement and this is you know to me but that it was like no one's doing anything i have to come with this full thing and in reality that's not true at all no i mean like the the funny thing about stacy abrams now uh, being viral on the internet is that Stacey Abrams has been doing incredible things for all communities for a very long time. So if we, Georgia has always had those Senate seats, you know what I mean? So if we wanted to have these conversations, there were places to go within our own communities to have these types of conversations at a granular level, locally, statewide, that trickles upwards sometimes if you make enough of a difference, right? So I think that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, like that's also just like kind of the <laughs> the main thing is like you could just not talk and just invest in like the people who are on the grounds doing this. And I mean, obviously, I don't know, maybe behind the scenes they are, no idea. But it's like that would be the main thing is that if you are in this place of power and you want to imagine some of the same things that disenfranchised people also want to imagine for themselves why would you not be just helping the people on the grounds um do that rather than you know putting yourself as kind of like the representative of this plan or what have you you know i do think artists at large in any industry feel a lot of pressure to not be able to say that they don't know or not take a stand sometimes. And, you know, we're all being hypercritical of people that are apolitical at the moment because it seems like a very obvious decision. But I do think there's so much power in like, especially young kids hearing someone say, I don't know, I need to go ask someone or I need to go learn more because then maybe they start reading and thinking the same way, right? Like becoming more critical. Mm. And I mean, that's why I think it's like, you see, you know, I had already spoken about no names, so I'll do like Cardi B as an example, where it's just like this person, one, is genuinely curious about like how the American political system is. They are curious about, you know, the presidents we've had and how they have navigated their own different presidencies. So, but at the same time, she she doesn't, present herself as the know-it-all you know she presents herself as just like I'm a rapper but I'm also a citizen of this country who would like to see things better for the people that listen to me 
which yeah. is predominantly people of color, black people, you know, um, on top of just like, we had another piece that was specifically about Cardi B and um, her kind of rise as a, as a pundit. And just the fact of her being like a, a sex worker and being in, um, being a poor person in this country, how all, all of that also just adds another perspective that we don't often get from aspiring hip hop pundits because most of them are black men. So, yeah. For sure. <laughs> I think that I think that's actually a very good place to end it. Um, thank you, man. Appreciate you. Yeah, we really appreciate this. Uh, thank you all. Thank you for the opportunity. I can't wait to hear how it comes out. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
that while Cube made care about the contract with Black America, he didn't write the contract with Black America. Hmm. And so um, I kind of wanted people to, to get to that meat on their own. I think that's amazing. One of the biggest things I loved about your piece is you do a thorough dissection of things that I think are credible reasons to be upset with his stance versus personal attacks on whether you like his music or not, or what he has or has not. Who, who are we to like take ownership of someone's, that, that's a personal musical opinion, right? That really has no place in this sort of conversation. And I think what I saw the day sort of news broke was all these tweets about man's went from fuck the police to this real quick. And I was like, that we're drawing parallels that might be true in a really, really specific niche manner if you extend a parallel. But for this conversation, we have to talk about, is this person actively talking about voting? Are they making organized efforts to support their community? And what does that mean? And that's why they're not credible because they're not doing those things versus the slander. And I think in journalism at large, especially in hip hop, on the podcast, I often try to bring pieces by journalists that describe and respect hip hop in a way that most others don't, because I don't think the genre or the culture gets the respect it deserves compared to its counterparts in pop or in country or in any other type of musical genre. And so in this piece, I think you really did that because people were forced to be like, okay, based on the facts, this is what he did do, this is what he didn't do, and this is not like Scott's hot take on Ice Cube's music. Yeah, well, that was really important to me. Like, um, well, it, it helps that I don't generally approach celebrity the way that most people approach celebrity, right? I always see celebrities as people first. And so I try to strip them of that altogether if I can, especially in a situation where a celebrity is attempting to do something that is normal, like engage in politics or vote or become an activist, like outside of their art. You know, when they wanna do things that people that I know do, then, you know, I tend to kind of approach them as a person first. That said, um, this is Ice Cube, right? This is an OG. There's very little that he could do that will ever make me stop listening to death certificate. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not giving that up. I don't care if he told me he was voting for Trump. I'm gonna listen to that record. I'm just not gonna tell y'all I'm listening to that record. You know, so, um, so it was important to me not to participate in any kind of canceling in that way, right? Like I'm not against canceling anybody, but I think we kind of get really overwrought about what that really is, right? You know, um, when you see celebrities and musicians and so on and so forth decrying cancel culture while they are in front of thousands of people, it's like, how canceled are you, right? So, I'm never really trying to tear somebody down on that in that way. I'm always trying to get to maybe the person behind it, or if I can't do that because I don't know Ice Cube, I try to get to simply what they have done, right? Or simply what they have said. And we can compare that to what they have done and see where the, where the reality is. Sure. So um, specifically on that note, the, the, clear kind of parallel or comparison you make to, to his moves and what he was trying to get done is uh, not chess-like, 
as you said in your tweet, which is what people were comparing it to, but more so like poker. So can you kind of dive into, into where you drew that comparison? Sure. So um, as I mentioned, and as you notice, you know, some of the article really isn't about Cube. It's about the people who are fans of Cube who see moves like this as like these really deep intellectual political games. And as a person who plays chess and as a person who plays poker well, um, I'm like, yo, this is not the game that you think it is. That's not what's happening here. Um, the moves, uh, if, you, if you look at the way chess is, right, as a game, you know, our impression of it, without getting all nerdy about it, our impression of it is that it requires intellect, it requires strategy, it requires the ability to be predictive. Um, almost nothing about what was coming out in terms of Ice Cube's relationship or not relationship with the Trump administration exhibited any of those qualities. They did, however, exhibit the qualities of poker, which is by comparison, a very brutal game, a very primal game, a very basic game. It's a very game, it's a game of chicken, basically, right? Um, you are in a sense threatening your opponent to outplay you, as opposed to chess where you're trying to outsmart your opponent. Poker is very physical in that way, mentally. Right, You don't have to be intelligent to play poker well. You need to be able to read people. You need to be able to read the room. You need to be able to maybe do a little math on the cards. But you know, no one would necessarily say that poker is particularly an intellectual pursuit. Uh, chess, however, has that impression. Um, and so to me, that was, the you know, as analogies go, that's what leapt out at me. Right. If we're going to talk about games, if we're going to talk about strategy, you know, the stuff that I'm looking at is not chess like it's definitely poker like. Right. So the 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 thing that struck me specifically about that is it and you've kind of gone into this is it takes it away from um the kind of rabbit hole that you can dive into, which is that of get, reading Ice Cube's mind as, and his intention. And you're kind of giving a little bit of a blanket of like, okay, you have to assume on some level that he wants what's best for, for the people that he is trying to represent. But there's, it's ju there's just a way that he is going about it that is not going to accomplish the goals which he sets out to, to accomplish. Um, so what, what were kind of more direct parallels within like the, the scope of playing a game of poker that you were really kind of getting into? So um, poker really set itself up for situations like this and this situation specifically. Um, so for instance, um, in poker, you uh, have a hand and it's either good or bad, right? And in the real world, as an analogy, that would be like resources, things that you bring to the table, right? Yep. Um, Chips would be resources, things that you bring to the table. And so in this case, um, when you're dealing with the government, when you're playing games with the government in theory, right? Um, or I guess practically, um, you are suggesting at the very least certain things, you have certain things in hand when you come to the table, right? Mm -hmm. um, so for instance, you are suggesting that you have votes <laughs> that you have a block of votes or that you have influence on votes. 
because that's certainly when it comes to black people, that's what politicians tend to care about. They have all the other stuff, right? Um, and they generally control many of the parameters or most of the parameters under which black people live, um, consciously or unconsciously. So there isn't a lot for us to bring to the table when we're dealing with people like politicians and presidential administrations. It, and it almost doesn't matter who the president is in light of that, right? Um, but in a poker game, you know, you would say, you know, you would bet your hand, you would say, okay, depending on which kind of poker you were playing, in my mind, it was Texas Hold'em. Right. right? Yeah. So it was like, okay, I have two cards, the dealer's going to drop another three cards, we're all going to share those three cards, but I'm betting that my two cards will be dope, doper than you anyway. Right. Or if they're not, and in the case of black people, in terms of our resources, those cards usually aren't, um, I am counting on you blinking before I blink so that I can win something out of this. And to me, that's kind of what this situation was, right? It was like, you know, whether Cube wholly intended it or not, what was happening was someone with the contract with Black America was meeting with the Trump administration as if they had a hand to play. Mm -hmm. And by understanding that the Trump administration was going to announce that. They were gonna announce that meeting. They were gonna play it up like something was happening. There was a relationship. They were gonna suggest um, things were in the works. They were gonna promise things. And they were gonna do all of this merely to get black votes, male, male votes specifically, right? Yep. Um, you know, when they come to the table with that, then it's like, I think you guys might've overplayed your hand here, right? I don't think that the contract with Black America side of the table understood entirely who they were dealing with. Um, I, I think that they thought that they were actually playing poker with them when in fact, really there wasn't, there wasn't much, they didn't bring much to the table to deal with. Like there was no way the Trump administration could really lose in that game. Mm -hmm. And so in effect, the Trump administration called their bluff. Right. Yeah. I think or, on Twitter okay. that day, I saw something after you shared your piece, someone tweeted me and said something to the effect of, it almost plants this false hope in communities at large of, okay, if the Trump administration gets another term, then this is our only hope or our only in. So we might as well make relationships so that if that happens, and then my, my retort to that sort of logic was, you have to take people for what they show you they are. And you say this in your piece because you say that in effect, poker is affecting your outcome, but you're still playing with the same hand. The hand is not changing. Correct. So the Trump administration is the Trump administration is the Trump administration. The things that Trump said when he was 50 are still effective now in his policies and his actions and what he verbalizes. So if you don't have a standard account of change that we can say, oh, this person said this thing and then they changed and then they improved, why would you believe it this time? And I think the part that really got me is you touch on this in a like read in between the lines kind of way, but Ice Cube does not have the funds or the backing to say if the administration does not follow through on this, I can follow through on this for Black America. I can hold this card and this seat at the table and have the money to back that up to build my own communities if this administration fails me. 
And that for me was big because communities of color, black communities specifically are resource poor in this country because of systemic choices. So if you are going to make an assertion that someone else is going to make them resource rich or resource, e resource equal, then you better have something to back that up because history and record shows that you, that person, the Trump administration will not show up for them. And, and I would venture, I would take it one step further and say, you never sit down at the table with somebody like that. You never sit down at the table with an administration that has been as duplicitous and as illegal as this administration, right? There's almost no reason to sit down at all with this administration, whether you thought they had another four years coming or not. Um, their track record is such, I mean, is, I mean you're, you're basically make, literally making a deal with the devil. Right? You're making a deal with someone who has done nothing in the four years that they've been in office, you know, that was productive uh, for your people at all, for your communities at all, like yeah. at all. Anything that might have looked like a positive was probably organic. It was going to happen anyway, you know, the unemployment rate or whatever, you know, um, which, you know, is a bogus figure now, as it turns out. Yeah, so let's go back to the, the the poker metaphor just one more time in that, in the sense of like, so Ice Cube's coming to the Trump administration with not really much of a hand, but he has something that he's holding on to that he is offering, but they're calling his bluff. So in the result in like a poker game, and this is a little bit vague, I guess, but I feel like you could probably provide more clarity than me, is when he loses the hand, what does, what does he risk losing that he was bringing to the table in the first place when, when the game is over? Black people's credibility. Right. So um, when you hit the, the radar of white America as if you have a plan, right? And you say, here is the thing that we are uh, gambling with. We have this contract. This is the contract. This is the deal. This is the thing that we want. These are the list of things that we want. And that doesn't pan out. If you lose, they never have to take us seriously again. Mm. And both sides realize that, right? It's not just the Republicans never have to take us seriously because that was happening anyway. The Democrats never have to take you seriously, right? So how what, what is it that Ice Cube or anybody that supports him thinks they can go, let's say Joe Biden wins, right? What is it that you think you're bringing to the table now that you have lost siding in a sense, in a sense, with Trump? Attempting to gamble, attempting to play this game. Nothing. You've lost all our credibility. You, 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 you have exposed our lack of leverage, which is even worse, right? Credibility you can regain, but leverage is real. Like right. you need real concrete things for leverage. And what you're exposing perhaps, is that you don't have them. Right. So you only really get one shot at this. Right. And in my opinion, by dealing with Trump and by playing the game that he's playing, you know, look, I don't think that you win here. You can't win here. You lost here. And we're all going to lose here. Right. I think it's interesting because it just reminds me of like uh, a specific movie, but I won't get into that. But just it's like a gambling addict who keeps going back to the table, then potentially to eventually at the end of their kind of binge, 
uh, leaving with absolutely nothing when the real reality is they should have tried a different game in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I you would have had more luck at roulette than you would have had yeah. playing poker with the Trump administration, right? At least you could have said, well, let's bet 50-50 black or red, you know, and see what happens. But um, as it turns out, you know, um, the contract is not the best. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the contract implicitly, right? It's basically a reparations platform. But, and, and who in their right mind would be against that? Um, so the issue isn't with the contract. The issue is with how you deal with the contract, how you play with the contract, how you leverage the contract. And I think that that was done extremely poorly. Yeah, I think something that happens often, especially on the democratic side of politics, and this is everyone, an opinion of mine, not a generalization, um, but something that I notice a lot is we don't make the same type of blanket statements that Republicans often make. Everything is really granular and detail oriented and policy specific because we're hoping that constituents rise to the occasion and understand what it is we're talking about. Unfortunately, this plan, like many right conservative policies, in my opinion, the way it's presented and marketed is a lot of gross exaggerations, right? So it's this much money allocated to this, this many new jobs, but how and why in a system that is still fundamentally in its nature designed to fail a very specific community that this plan claims to serve, how do those things go into action? And that for me becomes a really big disconnect and is comes back to the point where you say something to the effect at the end of your piece about how you don't make deals with people whose platforms or intention is circulated around the idea of killing you or your death. Yes, um, you know, there is no one way to uh, liberate black people from the system under which we live, right? Uh, it's going to be a lot of different things happening in concert. And we don't even have to really plan that. That's what's happening naturally. There's already a hundred different things happening at the same time in aid of Black people's liberation, right? Um, that said, you really shouldn't expend a single one of those things with anybody who is actively working against your existence, <laughs> right? Like, you really should never be sitting at the table with, with a stone cold white supremacist. I mean, to what end? To what end? What do they have that is so politically staunchly good that you're gonna actually get from them that you can actually use that they won't find 10 ways on top of it to take back? There's no point. There's no point. At least the left, you can kind of use a bully pulpit here and there. They actually, you know, occasionally align with you philosophically or politically. Um, but, you know, the Trump administration and the GOP, at least the modern GOP uh, in general, are not the people to get those kind of deals done. It's like working with the very people that made it their life's work to disenfranchise a community. And that's just a table and deal that you don't get involved in. At large, what do you think that does for sort of a community? Now, I don't know that young people are listening to Ice Cube, but um, for, for folks that do consider certain celebrities sort of like big community figures and anytime someone gets involved in politics, whether they like it or not, they represent a certain community. 
So do you feel like there are consequences to this because Ice Cube is a black man making this contract on behalf of black America that they didn't sign up for? <laughs> so I don't know if Cube is the best example of this. Like, I don't know that he's personally, you know, going to carry too much weight um, in this respect. I think that you'd be better off comparing that to somebody like Kanye, yeah. you know, some who young people are listening to, who young people are paying attention to, are modeling themselves after in various ways. Um, you know, to me, he's, if you want to talk about, you know, who's doing some kind of political damage, I think that's firmly in the Kanye camp, you know. Um, Cube, I think, you know, is still, you know, Cube is still fairly unapologetically pro-Black, right? You can say what you want about his other value systems, but he's pro-Black. And so he brought that to the table. I think it was a little undercooked. You know, he certainly didn't have enough chips at that table, but, um, but Kanye is playing a whole nother level of the game because he's actually dealing with some real levels of active support. Um, and that could really play out in a, in a really dangerous way politically. Yeah. Like people may not like, you know, cube in a, in a sense, you know, here and there, little spots of it. He's kind of like, well, maybe we shouldn't vote for whoever, right. He's kind of, edging up to the line of suggesting as much. But Kanye is actively, right, getting you to move your vote somewhere else. Yeah. You know, somewhere against your good. Sheesh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. That's, I mean, I didn't even expect us to go into that side of the whole thing, but that's <laughs> Well, I'm never trying to talk about Kanye, but it happens. The reason yeah. I went there is actually because towards the end of your piece, you do take a stance, right? You go from this extremely objective dissecting style of writing to, okay, but this ain't it. Yeah. <laughs> this ain't it. I just want y'all to know that this is not the deal to do. And I think that's important because it does, it does show that you're not condoning or co-signing this yeah, sort of regardless of whatever the intention may or may not be the the moves yeah, i did try to do all my homework first and then get to that you know yeah. um and i almost never get to choose the titles for these pieces unfortunately you know like you know they always that's the first thing that gets changed whenever i submit a column is the title but this one was pretty close they only changed a couple of words but and we're yeah. journalists do we know that struggle. I definitely well, everyone know that listening, struggle. if you've ever read any of our bylines, the headline is probably not what we submitted. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> without without our permission to. <laughs> I get that a lot where people are like, that headline doesn't sound like you. I'm like, that headline sounds like the editor. Yeah. Yeah. It's not it's a, I mean, look, it's it's cool. I, I I work for them. So, you know, if I felt like the title was doing my piece of disservice. I would be like, hey, man, let's talk about this title. But I've never had to do that with those guys, that level. Yeah, shout out our guy, Jermaine Hall. Yeah. That's true. Um, I, I guess I'll say one last thing about the piece. I did love that you brought in the stand back and stand by portion of Trump's statement because I think sometimes readers just need specific examples that aren't overwhelming, right? They need to be reminded, especially in a news cycle that is as intense as this one. It's really easy to get into that fatalistic mindset of spiraling and unsure of what's gonna happen and there's too much information. So 
for us to bring back extremely strategic examples of like, don't forget this was five days ago is, is I thought that was beautifully done. Yeah, well, you know, we have to get past this point where we're just saying the Trump administration is racist, right? Like everybody knows that, everybody. Racists know that, right? No one is really under the impression that that's not what they are. So just saying that on its face is not enough. It's not getting, it's certainly not getting the job done. So I think that it, it definitely is more productive to try to bring in these very specific things that readers will have to contend with, right? This is what he actually said. Now, what is your stance on this? What is your stance on this contract? What is your stance on the platinum plan? You know, just saying he's racist is, is not going to get the job done anymore. It, it generally won't get the job done with anybody. incredible time talking to both Elijah Watson and Scott Woods about covering controversial topics, the implications of headline cultures, and the power of perspective. Mickey, what did you think of the conversations we had? Uh, well, firstly, thanks so much to Elijah and to Scott. I think they really helped broaden my perspective. And, and um, you know, with the basic ingredients we talked about at the beginning, I think it's really easy to kind of hone in on these individual things with it, but they really helped me broaden my perspective of the issue at large. Um, and it's especially to me, the thing that our, our conversation really made me think about is obviously now where we're at um, with Biden being elected to office and kind of where that <laughs> leaves Cube, especially with kind of the way he went about everything and, and, and really has made me think based on the things that they said and the implications, um, what he's gonna really even be able to do now. What about you? Yeah, I, I think, Thank you to both Scott and Elijah for talking to us. But I think I learned so much from both of those pieces in particular than I did probably from the other however many you and I read mm -hmm. when we were researching the topic. But I think it's super important, and we touch on this a little bit when we talk to Elijah, that whoever is in media or considers themselves a writer with one reader or one million readers, I think we have to, at some point, ask of our audiences to be more critical thinkers for their own sake, whether it's for our agenda, whether you agree with Ice Cube's plan, whether you don't. I think it's important for people to become confident in their ability to critically assess something. And with headline culture and a lot of what's happening right now, they're just not because it just becomes who you like, what they're saying, and how it can be manipulated. Yeah. Hopefully we get to keep doing that on this show. I sure hope so. Um, as writers ourselves, we're all too familiar with being taken out of context and the dangers of things like headline culture. But at Central Sauce, we sort of aim to empower great writers and recognize music journalism, but also forge a culture of critical readers. And be sure to check out both pieces in our description by Scott and Elijah. And then please let us know in the comments uh, what did you think of the contract with Black America and the Platinum Plan, if you did some research on your own and compared it to what we've said? Was it well-intentioned? Did social media add fuel to the fire for this whole kind of situation at large? Um, let us know all of your thoughts and please tune in to whenever our next episode is up and we have some sauce that we need to stir.
And if you also have a uh, topic that you think we should cover, please tweet us. Uh, I, I'll say my Twitter handle at Mickey Montebello and Joshua, you want to say yours? Yeah, mine is Joshua W. So. And you can also tweet at Central Sauce or uh, at Fifth Element Podcast Network, which is true. Yes, let us know what we should be talking about. What are some hot topics that yeah. have great pieces? Yes, definitely. We will be on the lookout for them too. And hopefully we'll have another one soon enough. And just to close this out real quick, the thing I will say at the end of every single one of these episodes, just to keep uh, keep the puns going uh, through to the end. Um, just remember to keep stirring the sauce until it's ready to serve. Joshua? You guys, should we have a poll for the amount of times Mickey uses sauce puns in every podcast episode? Because I think that would be hilarious. I'm down. Let me know if you want them less or more. Hopefully more. Fingers crossed. I mean, I think you're going to do it anyway, so it's I'm going to do it anyway. Sauce puns, Mickey. It's okay. I just want some support. Okay, guys, it's the holidays. Let us know what your favorite saucy dish is. Hey, there we go. <laughs> see, see, I got buns. Shouts, uh, stuffing and gravy, you know what I'm saying? No, absolutely not. Butter chicken. Anyway. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for tuning in. Peace out. This edition of Stone the Source was hosted by Mick Hellerback and Josh Wadra of the Central Source Creative Collective and featured guests Elijah Watson and Scott Woods. The episode was edited by me, Chai Taylor, Fifth and Podcast Network. Music for this show is Air Death with Dignity by The Frenetic. This has been a Central Source and Fifth Element Podcast Network production. Links to The Frenetic, Central Source, Fifth Element and articles covered in this edition can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening and we hope to see you next time as we continue not just searching for Source, but contextualising it as well. Take it easy.